Thanks for tuning in to Redeeming Grace Bible Church. Here at Redeeming Grace Bible Church, it's our full conviction, as Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We pray as a result of this sermon, you come to see and know Christ more clearly, and if you do not yet know Christ, that you might also come to see him as Lord and Savior. Uh, James 4, uh, verse 1 this morning, and I'll just read uh, down to the end of verse 10. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Just as this word was true uh, in James' day when he wrote it, we know it is true today uh, because though the the grass withers and though the flower fades, the word of our God remains forever. Amen. Let's ask his help as we look at his word. Father, we come before you and Lord, we uh, praise you for you are pure light and in you there is no darkness at all. And so we, look, we know, Lord, that you never speak to flatter the hearts of man. Lord, you never um, give us half-truths or speak only to uh, our emotions. But, Lord, you speak truthfully and rightly that your word is like the double-edged sword that both wounds us but then also binds us up. And so I pray that we would not um, be proud as we come before even difficult passages that our flesh Uh, may cringe at, may be repulsed by, but Lord, by your spirit, may you give us uh, this humility which James describes, and Lord, that we would draw near to you, even through tears of repentance, that there would be, uh, Lord, just a a brokenness over our, our own drifting at times, and this would not be unto despair, but it would be so that we might flee to Christ, and Lord, even the glorious truths that we sang about, this love that is deep, Um, Lord, that is displayed in Christ, um, taking our sin upon himself and rising from the grave in in victory. Lord, I pray that 
that the awareness of our need would, would only increase our love for Christ and our, our trust in the sufficiency of what he's done. So help us now, I ask, to receive your word. And Lord, may I speak uh, and according to what James has written under the inspiration of your spirit. And thank you for this time together. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. This morning, uh, the title of the sermon is Rooting Out Worldliness. And uh, I put part one because I I want to, uh, Lord willing, linger here, not rush through this section. I know that's certainly the temptation. Uh, When we come to difficult portions of Scripture, we want to just kind of quickly read through it so we can get into something a little more uh, encouraging, a little more uplifting. But um, if what James is saying is true, that God will exalt the humble and give grace to those who humble themselves, then really the best path for us is to allow the Word of God to convict us and humble us. And so want to just take our time as we work through this section. And as we begin, I was thinking of a, the story of a man who uh, seemed to start off very well. He professed faith in Christ, and initially he spent much of his time learning and even evangelizing. And for a season, he worked alongside influential teachers and worked actively in church planting He was commended by many and seen as a shining example of what it means to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, sadly for this man, he did not finish well. Over time, he did not guard his soul. He became complacent in his walk, and his eye was ever drawn towards the pleasures of this world. The system in which we live, the philosophies of the age, began to allure his heart and his affections. And then one day he turned and walked away from his king. And sadly, this story sounds very familiar in our day, but the person I have in mind is actually someone we see in the New Testament. He's described in a number of Paul's letters as Demas. And he, for a time, seemed to run well. He seemed to work closely with the apostle and the others who were church planting and advancing the kingdom. But we find this tragic statement from the apostle Paul in, in what probably was the last letter he wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy uh, 4.10. Paul, before his own execution, he wrote this in 2 Timothy 4.10. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. And in that statement, we have this tragic story of a man named Demas, who, as far as we know, did not finish well. And what was it that pulled Demas away from the gospel, away from his loyalty to Christ and his partnership with Paul in the gospel? Well, Paul says it was because he had become in love with this present world. He allowed his heart to be led astray, to be pulled away from loyalty to Christ, And he went after the things of this world, which, as James describes, is to make yourself an enemy of God. And so you see, the the dangers of worldliness are not new with the Industrial Revolution or our information age that we live in. With all of our technology and all of our advancements, certainly that presents 
uh, unique temptations for the believer, but this has always warred against the followers of Christ and has led many, once sincere but, but misguided souls, astray. And so in this section of James, he, he really does turn up the heat. He, he comes right at this problem in the church. And it's not a passage of scripture you're probably going to find written on a t-shirt. Uh, probably not going to find this passage of scripture on a wall mural. Um, but nonetheless, we need to trust that it is part of God's word to us. And it is given for our eternal good. It really is better that we are wounded by 10,000 scriptures in this life and saved than to pretend that such verses don't exist and possibly miss Christ altogether. Proverbs 27, 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but profuse are the kisses of an enemy. And sadly, so many even preachers today have concluded that they will only focus on the encouraging, the uplifting, the, the, the positive portions of God's word, and we will just avoid these difficult texts that call us to repentance, that confront us with sin. But in the end, that's not loving, that's actually hateful, because it's the truth that sets us free, Jesus said. It's the careful and honorable surgeon who detects the tumor, who does the work of figuring out what's wrong, and then goes to the work of removing it, though he must cut the patient to do so. It's the wicked surgeon who doesn't care to investigate or to make the patient uncomfortable. So I pray we may humbly come to such a passage of Scripture and earnestly ask God to do his work within us. And as I said, I know it's been a few weeks since we've been in James, so just a little bit of a refresher as to what we have come through so far um, in the immediate context. You will remember that James uh, is going through a series of tests for the Christian from the beginning of the letter, letter. Really, you could summarize it as a series of tests for the believer to know whether their faith is truly a living and active faith, a working faith, uh, a faith that truly saves and he has, in chapter 3, talked about the need to guard the tongue, the, the potential danger of a tongue that is allowed to just run freely and the, the great damage that it can do. And uh, he, he pointed out that, that it should not be that from the same mouth come both cursing and blessing, that as believers we should be growing in godliness and consistency with the character of God. And so then he, in, in the end of chapter 3, um, verse 13 he contrasted the wisdom that is from the earth, this worldly demonic wisdom, contrasted that with the wisdom that comes down from heaven, that comes above, from above to us from God. And he described that wisdom as first pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and will produce a harvest of righteousness. So he has just contrasted these two opposing uh, forms of, of, of wisdom, that which is from the world, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist that produce all kinds of vile practices, he says, and then the wisdom that comes from God that produces in his people peace and gentleness, a reasonableness, full of mercy, good fruits, impartiality, very much similar to Paul's um, list of the fruit of the Spirit, so then he comes back in, in chapter 4 now to, once again, consider the effects of this worldly wisdom. 
And he is going to seek to root out the very source of this in the life of the Christian. Where, does, where do these fruits come from? James is going to attack the root itself, the heart uh, from which these attitudes and actions flow. And so James is wanting to expose us and then show us also the cure in repentance and drawing near to God. In my, uh, my Bible, it has above chapter 4, warning against worldliness. And so it is a helpful summary of this section. What is James getting at? There's a lot of information packed in here. There's a lot of things that he's addressing. We, he talks about prayer. He talks about repentance. He talks about the, the jealousy of God. And, and what is the, the overarching theme? Well, it is this call to repent of worldliness. Uh, now, that's not really a word that we, we use much uh, these days. It's certainly not one that uh, is, is very appealing. It seems rather maybe harsh or judgmental or uh, too critical. We, we, don't, we don't hear a lot about worldliness in our days. The, the, the Puritans certainly talked a lot about it. And uh, some of the, the early church were very concerned that the church be separate, set apart from the world. And, and, and so this idea of worldliness was of great concern. But sadly, for many professing believers today, there seems almost to be the attitude that Well, if we're going to relate to the world, then we actually need to look something like them and act something like them. And and that while I go uh, drinking with my friends and I watch the same movies and I listen to the same music and I do all of the same things that they're doing and act the way they do at work so that I might relate to them better. And we almost try to justify ourselves. And yet James is calling us out. He's exposing the danger of this love for the world, which could be called worldliness. We see before there is an external problem in our actions, there is a problem of the heart, a problem of misguided love in our heart. And this is why James likens it to adultery. Uh, it is fundamentally a betrayal, uh, a breaking of covenant with God, a breaking of allegiance to Christ, and we begin to give our love and our affection and our desires to the things of this world. C.J. Mahaney, in a little book I've been reading again called Worldliness, uh, not written just by him, it was um, co-authored by several men, he defined worldliness as uh, a love for this fallen world, It's loving the values and pursuits of the world that stand opposed to God. More specifically, it is to gratify and exalt oneself to the exclusion of God. It rejects God's rule and replaces it with our own. It exalts our opinions above God's truth. It elevates our sinful desires for the things of this fallen world above God's commands and promises. So kind of uh, extensive uh, definition there, but, but it is important to understand what James is talking about. What is this worldliness? Uh, it might seem even initially strange. He's saying, uh, do not love the world and, uh, call, and likens it to adultery. But then you may think, well, I thought we are supposed to love the world. I thought that God so loved the world that he sent his only son into the world to die that uh, we may have everlasting life. Isn't that what we're called to do? 
And, and we have to realize that categorically that, that's a different uh, sort of love to which the scriptures talk. God loves his people as his creation, as his own image bearers, even as uh, Albert reminded the children this morning as he's made us. And so there is this love, this desire to, to bring us to repentance, to have that reconciliation to him. But it is not a love, and this is what the worldliness is referring to, the love of the world, is a desire and a love for the philosophies of the world, for the ethics of the world, or lack of ethics. It's a, it's a setting yourself uh, to, to the praise of man. And so, yes, we are called to love in, in that Christian sense that we desire people to be reconciled to God. But what James is talking about is to enjoy and find gratification in the things that this world offers at the exclusion of God, to reject God's rule and to replace it with my own sovereign rule and my own opinions elevated above what God has said in his word is the essence of worldliness. And James shows us the poisonous fruit of this this root worldliness. And then he also shows us the root from which it grows. The fruit is evident. James describes it here and he has been Throughout his letter, there is quarreling and there is fighting. And, and he says the, the source of that, and he even describes murder, uh, the source is the passions, the desires within us to have, to, to possess, whether it is material things or a position or influence. We, we want it, we lust after it, and when we don't get it, we then begin to argue and fight and quarrel with one another. And sadly, I've, I've been in, uh, thankfully not here uh, with this group, and I pray the Lord enables us to, to continue to extend love to one another. But some of the most frightening uh, places I have been uh, in my lifetime have been in church business meetings where you come in and you know there's maybe a topic that's, that's a little uh, weighty and, uh, and it ends up turning into a yelling match and quarreling and fighting. And for weeks, people are upset with each other. And, and, and James no doubt saw this very sort of thing happening. You know, he's not writing to the unbeliever here. He's writing to professing Christians. That's what's so shocking about this. And, and he, you know, it sounds like he's maybe writing to the local tavern, the local bar, or maybe he's writing to the House of Commons as you watch the politicians banter back and forth and, and, and just be reduced to absurdities. But, but no, James is actually talking to those who profess faith in Christ and these sorts of fruits are becoming evident in their, in their life. They, they're, they're arguing and they're fighting and, and he describes murder, which we know certainly in the early church, uh, there, there were those who murdered the followers of Christ. There were those who put them to death uh, in the name of, of serving God, um, they crucified Christ um, out of jealousy and, and bitter ambition. Uh, they were certainly motivated by that, and we saw that present. But James probably isn't referring so much to the fact that the people in these churches are, are you know, literally knocking each other off out of anger. I, that's probably not what he has in mind, but more what Jesus referred to in Matthew 5, this sort of hatred anger in the heart that is like unto murder. Jesus would say in Matthew 5, 21, you have heard it 
Uh, You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Whoever says to his brother, um, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Uh, That's the New American Standard. So Jesus is, is... likening hatred to murder. And that's probably what James is also referring to. And remember, he's writing primarily to a Jewish audience as the church was in its infancy. And uh, this was so sadly a, a mark among even the Jewish believers. In fact, Jesus would describe Jerusalem in Matthew twenty three thirty seven as those who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to her even though Christ desired to gather them as a, as a mother hen would gather her chicks. But he said you were unwilling. And so James is coming against these sort of sinful, godless attitudes among the professing believers in the early church. And sadly, we see many today engaging in these very things, given over to anger, given over to arguing and quarreling, driven by this desire to have, this desire to to be in a position of influence or to have the, the praise of man or to possess what their neighbor possesses. And they become angry and, quarrel, and, and constantly given over to quarreling. But James, in many ways, is teaching what he learned from Christ uh, remember, we've said before that this letter in many ways is, could be seen as almost a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and perhaps we at times forget that Jesus did say some very hard things. He's not always Jesus with a big smile and a lamb on his shoulders. At times he's in your face with offensive truth and, and even making you cry for, for your guilt and shame. He's, he's not a respecter of feelings and religious tradition. Jesus feared God and always spoke the truth, not to be cruel, but it truly is loving to speak the truth. And that's what we need to to be convinced of in our day, that it it might feel loving to to tell somebody what they want to hear, to just affirm them in, in their emotional needs, but truly loving people Speak the truth. And Jesus did that perfectly because it's the truth that sets us free, he said. And Jesus, as the great physician, he is the one who can properly diagnose the human heart. And he tells us plainly the diagnosis in his word. And Jesus also is the one who holds the cure that we might trust him and lay under his knife that we might be healed. Maybe some of you children, and I'm sure many of you adults, have had to go to the dentist before because your tooth is hurting and it's getting worse and you try maybe to take an Advil or something, but it's not solving the problem, just kind of easing the pain for a little time. And, and we know that we must go to have the actual problem dealt with. We must go to the dentist. So there's actually a sense in which pain is a good thing if it's indicating to us a problem. It's indicating that something is wrong and then it should drive us to the cure, drive us to the solution. So maybe you're 
you know, your tooth is hurting and it's telling you something is wrong. So you go to the dentist and they do the x-ray and come back and sure enough, you have a cavity. Part of your tooth is decaying and that decay is, is working its way to your nerve and it's causing all kinds of discomfort in your mouth. So first of all, he has to drill out the tooth before the filling can be applied. And this is a, a miserable experience. I haven't met anyone that enjoys uh, you know, getting a filling done. They, you lay there on your back and you, you feel like you're strapped to this chair and he's grinding away on your, to- on your tooth and you're, you're drooling everywhere and you can't answer any of his questions. You've got your mouth you know, pried open with this weird piece of spandex strapped inside of your mouth and, and, and it's a terrible experience. Why would somebody go through this pain and misery? Well, it's because we know that this is how the problem can be resolved. And so there's even a sense in it of anticipation that this will fix the problem, that the pain will be gone. I can eat ice cream again, you know. (laughs) It's one of the most difficult things of tooth problems. You can't eat ice cream very well. Trying to keep it on one side of your mouth and it doesn't really work because it always kind of goes to the other and hurts. So we, we understand that on a physical level, we must go through the discomfort of a diagnosis and the removal of the old, even though it may be miserable, because we want the cure to be applied. But when it comes to spiritual sickness, we often want to run away from anything that makes us uncomfortable, anything that might expose a problem within us. We avoid texts that speak to this need. We distract ourselves with games, with videos, with hobbies and leisure and entertainment and work and anything that might keep us from looking into the mirror of God's word and exposing within us a problem. Remember what James said in in chapter 122, he said to be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And so to you, dear Christian, as as we hear what James is saying, may we get this. May we plead with God to give us a heart of humility, a heart willing to be wounded by the word that we might also be healed by the great physician of our souls. And if you look back over history, not only in the scriptures, but in church history, any great move of God in in history past where he has poured out his spirit in a unique way so that men call upon him and turn from their sin, there is one thing, well, and not just one thing, but one thing specifically that is true of every true, authentic work of God, and that is a sudden and deep awareness of one's sin before a holy God. A spirit-wrought urgency to, to root out that sin in one's life and to be reconciled to God afresh, to come before him in humility and brokenness and to repent, which not only means to, to turn from that, but a, but a spirit-wrought sorrow in your heart that you have offended the living God, the very Christ who has died for you. Your sin has made a mockery of that sacrifice. And to be broken over that before a holy God. 
is one of the prerequisites of any authentic work of God. But it's not something that we can fabricate. fabricate. You know, I grew up hearing about revival services. Oh, we're going to have revival and so-and-so is going to come from, you know, the States or whatever. And he's going to preach the revival service. There's going to be a revival here. And it's like, really? So you can just kind of orchestrate all of the right pieces and bring in the right speaker. And that's going to bring about revival. No, I don't think so. You see, this is, this is something that must be the work of God. But he has given us means that he uses to do this work. And it comes as we look into the mirror of his word with humility and an eagerness to humble ourselves before him, to have him expose us that we might repent and be cleansed of indwelling sin. It is through the wounding of the word that makes us ready to be filled afresh by the presence of the living God. And I know we talk about New Year's resolutions and maybe you took some time the past week or two weeks to make some goals for the new year. Or, you know, maybe it's more that I'm just putting one foot in front of the other right now and I'm just going to do it today and trust the Lord for grace for tomorrow. And that's uh, probably uh, often the best uh, route, but it's not bad to make some resolutions to, to do some evaluation. Uh, my wife has decided to, to purge as many unused or useless things uh, that she can from our house that we've accumulated over the years or from the garage or anywhere else on the property that she might come across. And uh, so the boys and I are actually on our best behavior right now because uh, if we are considered worn out or in the way, we might end up purged ourselves. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, if you happen to be in the thrift store and find me or one of the boys there, then please <laughs> purchase, a, purchase me back. <laughs> but, uh, but no, it's, it's good to actually begin to organize things and realize, actually, I have a lot of, you know, uh, bug spray. I thought I had no bug spray or whatever you find. So this has been ongoing. And, and yet, as I think about my own life uh, and the new year ahead, and for us as a church body, um, when was the last time that there was a spiritual purging in our hearts? When was the last time that, that we came before God and, and just truly asked that God would root out indwelling sin, expose in my heart idolatry, tendencies to, to go after the things of this world? What, what areas in my soul have I been neglecting? And so my prayer for myself this year and for us as a church, whether you like it or not, <laughs> is that, that God would do a deep work of rooting out sin and worldly desire from within me. And so I don't want to rush through this portion of James. I want us to, to linger here and ask that God would, would do a, a unique work in our hearts of repentance, of purification, of purging out some of these selfish ambitions or lusts of the flesh or areas where we have been neglectful. Praying that God would help us to be courageous, to face the truth of his word, not to gloss over it or to quickly move on. Like Jacob, who grabbed a hold of God and he encountered the angel of the Lord, which he realized was, was uh, pre-incarnate 
Christ, we look back and see the angel of the Lord as Christ oftentimes working himself in the Old Testament. And Jacob grabbed hold of the angel of the Lord and he wrestled with him and he told him, I will not let you go until you bless me. And you see, that needs to be often our attitude as we come to these, these, these texts. We're tempted to rush on. We're tempted to gloss over. We need to grab hold of God's word and plead with God. I will not let you go until you expose in me the areas where I need to repent. Please do a work in me. Make me more useful in your kingdom. Help me to love my spouse better. Help me to lead my children better. Help me to work at my job in a way that honors Christ, seeing all of life as sacred, not only Sunday mornings. Help me to be more courageous, to share the gospel. Help me to to love Christ with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we have to wrestle with God. And I know we rejoice in the sovereign work of God in our salvation, but let us not forget, as James is telling us, there is also in God this delight when his children actively pursue him and draw near to him with the means that he's given. And we are told if we draw near to God, he will also draw near to us. And, and, and so that this is something we are called to do. Alistair Begg said, any dead fish can drift downstream, but it takes a living one to swim against the current. And so we understand that it's the Spirit of God who must awaken us to Christ, who must enable our bodies to to live, our souls to live unto God, that we might swim, we may fight, we may declare war on our sin. And so I pray that we can look honestly and deeply at this in the weeks ahead. And to be perfectly honest, I look at my own life over the past even several years and I admit that it's been too long since I've truly wept over my own sin. Too long since my own heart was deeply broken over complacency or indifference to the lost or my own lack of of love for my family or selfless love for the flock of Christ. And often I'm too quick to justify my own sin. Well, it's just been so busy. Well, I've been sick. Well, it'll be better once we are financially stable. Then I will take seriously my walk with Christ. Maybe after school, then I will have time to read the Bible again. Once the kids are older, well, then I will have more free time. I won't be so busy wrangling these children. Then I will once again take seriously my walk with Christ. And we can pretty much justify murder, can't we, if we want to. We can justify almost anything in our own minds. But I know within me, within Aaron Hale, there lurks plenty of selfish ambition, of covetousness. I can be quick to anger with my children or my wife. I can be defensive of my own sin when it is pointed out. The stinging rebuke from James hits close to home. You do not have because you do not ask. But you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. May God help us heed these words. We're immersed in a culture that 
is offended at everything. You're, you're hesitant to say yes, ma'am, or yes, sir, because you're afraid that in so doing, in trying to be polite and respectful, someone's going to become angry at you because you have misgendered them or something like that. Our culture is, is ridiculous in the things that we want to get upset about. But as Christians, we must not be like that. We must learn to, to trust the goodness of God and the wisdom of God enough to hear painful truth. And it might feel like he is grinding away at our very soul, but we anticipate the blessing of his strength and his mercy. Like the disciples, we must come to Christ and say, Lord, teach me to pray. Often I neglect prayer until I am in a desperate situation. And then I come in prayer, but my asking is is from such wrong motives that I don't receive, which results in more frustration. And James is saying, learn to ask rightly. Learn to ask in humility. Not simply from selfish ambition. I realize that in and of myself, I can't even repent properly. And there's oftentimes a need to repent of our repentance. I don't know if you've ever felt that as a believer. It's like, Lord, I don't even know how to be broken over sin. I don't even know how to properly see this for what it is. You must help me. You must open my eyes and give me understanding by your spirit. One of the greatest fears of my life, more than death itself, is to become a Demas. One who ran well for a season, but then slowly begins to turn his heart to the world. His love for Christ over time growing cold. His hunger and thirst for righteousness waning. And more and more finding pleasure in the praise of man, in success in the world's eyes. And then one day suddenly abandoning the faith altogether. Today we just have new names for it. Deconstructing my faith. As though this is a liberating thing, a a new beginning, a new me, a free me. I'm finally free from all of that religious nonsense. I'm deconstructing now. But in the end, it's the same death, the same bondage to the father of lies. And his only desire for you is to drag you to hell with himself. And so it's the same lie over again. As Christians, we must battle and the battle begins as we look plainly at what the word of God tells of us and then by God's spirit humbling ourselves in repentance before him that he might cleanse us and fill us afresh with his spirit. Jesus warned in Matthew 24 in the last days many would fall away and betray one another and hate one another And by the way, we're living in the last days. I would argue that since the ascension of Christ, we are in the last days. So this isn't just some future generation that has to worry about this. No, this is right now. And many false prophets will arise, he said, and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. That is the great fear of my soul, that that I would grow cold in my love towards God and begin drifting as Demas did. So just in closing, what does it even mean for us to repent? And we'll, as I said, look uh, more into this in the weeks to come. But in Thomas Watson's little book, The Doctrine of Repentance, um, I actually ordered a few of them, so if you'd like to read it, I'd highly recommend it. It was a book that uh, Todd Friel had on his top 13 or whatever it was books for 
2022 or uh, something like that, and he referenced it. So I got a um, Kindle copy and I ordered a few hard copies. But in this little book, Thomas Watson said, Repentance is a grace of God's spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and outwardly reformed. And he went on to say, before a man can come to Christ, he must first come to himself. A man must first recognize and consider what his sin is and know the plague of his heart. Before he can be duly humbled for it, the first thing God made was light. So the first thing in a penitent is illumination. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord, Ephesians 5.8. The eye is made both for seeing and weeping. Sin must first be seen before it can be wept for. Hence, I infer that where there is no sight of sin, there can be no repentance. And so we must first be willing to see sin for what it is and not primarily looking at our neighbor, pointing our finger at our brother or sister, but looking inwardly, allowing the word of God to expose us. And as we see it rightly, By the Spirit of God, we then can be broken for it and truly repent of it and be healed from it. And so this morning, maybe you already feel a sense of your own need, or maybe you feel as though you want to flee from this passage. You don't want to think about this anymore. I don't want to think about sin. I don't want any negative thoughts. I just want positive thoughts. And and, and so I'm pleading with you to, to patiently wait upon the Lord and to examine ourselves in light of his word over these weeks and ask the Lord to grant to us a new sense of repentance which leads us to life, which leads us to strength in Christ. And so I urge you to flee to the Lord Jesus. Isaiah prophesied of Jesus that a bruised reed he would not break and a smoldering wick he would not quench. Until he brings justice to victory and his name, the Gentiles, in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Matthew 12, 20. Let us turn from the emptiness of sin and the love of this world and run to Christ who died that we might live and who was raised that we too might walk in newness of life. Let us resolve to do that together as individuals in our homes, as a body, and we pray as a province, a nation, that God would once again sweep across the lands by his spirit, bringing men to repentance before him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Lord God, we come before you and we know that we are so limited in our understanding especially when it comes to considering our own hearts before you, Lord, that we are experts at justifying our actions or thoughts or distracting ourselves from oftentimes what is most important. And not that we want to be neglectful of our responsibilities and uh, our commitments, but God, I pray in the coming week and in the coming year that you would help us to, Lord, set aside time to truly come before your word and allow it to do its work in exposing us. Lord, we we want to be clean vessels for Christ. Lord, we want to 
be uh, conformed further into his likeness, that we would truly love our families as you would have us, that we would work as you would uh, have us, Lord, that we would honor you in, in the workplace and as a church body, that we would see your hand and mercy among us, Lord, even delivering from the bondage of sin and the deceitfulness of, of the devil's schemes, that this would be broken in our hearts. And God, that we might be uh, a means by which you can reach even the nations. Lord, this community, and we think of uh, Grimshaw and Peace River and Clairedale, Worsley, Lord, all around us, these communities that desperately need um, pure vessels through which you may work and minister. Help us to be such a people. And we ask this all for Jesus' sake. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this sermon preached at Redeeming Grace Bible Church. If you'd like to find out more about Redeeming Grace Bible Church or find other sermons and resources, please visit us online at www.redeeminggracechurch.ca. We pray that the Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you, that the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.